<laughs> Technology. <laughs> the teaching generally referred to as not self. Did everybody hear the beginning bit, by the way? Yeah, good. Okay, so the teaching generally referred to as not self. So I would kind of thought um, of entitling this, this talk about um, something like, you know, is it all about me? or stop taking things so personally. So that's the kind of area I want to explore. And I want to say, just to perhaps to start off about this, that I came across many years ago, actually, when I was teaching here down in Devon, uh, doing, teaching a three-month course, um, a residential course here. Um, we had somebody who came from New York on the course, and he said this was a typical New York Jewish phrase. He said, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> so in a way, that's going to be the theme. Before I, before I get to that, I want to kind of place it again slightly in the context of the overall tenor of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha, as we've known, as we've explored right from the first night, um, the Buddha's teaching is aimed at waking up. I think this is always very important, and though I can, I can sometimes joke about this, but I do think this is very important, that we see this as the aim of the teaching, it's to wake up. It's not to become enlightened, um, simply because this is not an accurate translation of the term. The term is derived from the Pali Sanskrit term bodhi, which means to be awake. Yeah, so we're engaged in trying to wake up, and actually if you think about that, that sounds fairly honourable, doesn't it? Yeah. Because what it's really trying to indicate is that for the majority of the time we are, in a sense, somnambulistic, you know, sleepwalkers. We sleepwalk through life much of the time. Um, that sleepwalking through life actually goes under a phrase in the mindfulness-based interventions. It's called automatic pilot. Yeah. Mm -hmm when you're just engaged in a series of reactive behaviors um, that often have a particular feeling tone. And that feeling tone I explored just a little bit on the first talk I gave, which was the feeling tone of dukkha. That things are not quite right, they're not quite satisfactory. Have you noticed within yourself psychologically and for others that we encounter just how much there is this huge sense of disappointment and dissatisfaction. Not all the time. I don't want to paint a particularly monolithically black picture. But there's an awful sense of disappointment and dissatisfaction that often runs through our lives. Even, and I do say this very seriously, even when things appear to be happening for us in the right way. Let alone when they're going wrong for us. Um, as Oscar Wilde once said, there's nothing worse than not getting what you want than getting what you want. Yeah. And so the sense of dissatisfaction is almost inbuilt into the human condition. And this is the whole area that the Buddha is exploring in the sense of, of the dukkha that we inflict on ourselves. And so much of that is down to this automaticity that we engage in, this automatic behaviors that we engage in. 
to put it in terms of the way that the Buddha is speaking two and a half thousand years ago, it's because we haven't woken up. We actually haven't woken up to the realities of the world we live in. We lead, we lead for the most part, often fantastical lives. Um, I'm tempted to say fantastically miserable lives a lot of the time. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, we live these fantasies about how we should be and how others should be and how the world should be. And in those fantasies, there's often a psychological denial of the way the world is, the way it actually is. And so when the Buddha speaks about waking up, as I explored with you on my first talk and the other night, part of that is, is actually to wake up to the way things actually are. Not the way I'd like them to be, not the way I can fantasize about them, but the way they actually are. The content of the awakening, in many senses, is to really, really wake up, fully wake up, to three things. And one of those is the subject of tonight. The first thing we're waking up to is impermanence. Sounds really easy, doesn't it, to wake up to impermanence. It's not so easy at all, as I'll explore with you in a, in a minute or two. Waking up to the reality of dukkha, actually. Waking up to the fact that dukkha is a part of life. And waking up to this impersonal dimension of life and particularly the impersonality in a sense of what is going on within us, often what we call self. Where we perceive self, the Buddha is saying there is actually not self. And this is, this is the bulk of what I want to speak this evening about. But before we get there, I just want to explore these other two little facets, which are not so little, um, because we don't actually wake up to them, um, at all. You know, if you noticed in this non-waking up process that we're engaged in, in this automatic process, it's like we're sort of walking along the street, keep bumping into the same lamppost. And, not, and you know, all you end up is with bruises. Um, and you wonder where they come from. <laughs> you know, occasionally we might have a little bit of waking. It goes something like this. as we fall back asleep again. Yeah. So, a lot of our lives are spent walking around in this extremely drowsy, if not comatose state, whereby we just wonder where the bruises that we get come from. Now, I'm, in a way, I'm, I'm overplaying this to make a point. Yeah. So what the Buddha is offering us what he's offering us, almost challenging us to, is to engage in that process of waking up. Now, this is not easy. It's not easy because waking, what we're waking up to is also not easy. It's we're waking up to dimensions of life that we actually spend a lot of our lives trying to deny, trying to move away from, you know, trying to push away, trying to know nothing about, actually. Probably many of you will know, if you've looked at any Buddhist psychology at all, that all of this process is built on something the Buddha talks about as being ignorance. 
I don't tend to use that word. I tend to translate it a little bit more freely. It's not entirely accurate, but it, I think it has more of this sense of confusion. You know, that actually a lot of the way that we are in this world is, is simply confused a lot of the time. I often, you know, as I've many times said in this room, when we are born, none of us get life a user's manual, do we? We don't get that being thrust at us. What we have are, are guides through our lives who seem to be extremely confused a lot of the time. Most of those are called parents. <laughs> yeah. And what they do is pass on their confusion to you. <laughs> you know. So basically what we've got is a, a co-fraternity of bewilderment. <laughs> and that's how we spend a lot of our lives, in this bewildered, confused state. Now out of the, uh, almost the, you know, the, the jokiness about this, there is a very serious picture, which, is, uh, which is I'm trying to paint which is actually this is, this is not that we're bad or anything of that sort because most of us out of that confusion will try to do our best in life. We will try to get through. We will try to behave decently a lot of the time. Um, we will try to get on with others. Um, and most of us, I think Christina is very fond of saying this, most of us don't go out in the morning with the intention to be really horrible. Yeah. But somehow, often between leaving your house and getting to your place of work, something happens you know, um, uh, that we don't know to how to deal with skillfully. And what the Buddha is talking about is waking up to our sense of confusion and how often that sense of confusion will give rise to the senses of dissatisfaction that we experience, because often we're placing an unrealistic demand on this world to be something that it can never be for us. Yeah. I'll say that again, because I think it's a really important thing. We place an unrealistic demand on the world, the things in the world, the people in the world, to deliver something that it ultimately can never deliver for us. Yeah. We look externally for conditions to satisfy us. Yeah. We're looking, for example, a very big, obvious example within the Western world, we're looking for the material goodies of the Western world often to give us something we're searching for. Perhaps we might label it happiness. Perhaps we might label it satisfaction. Something that will quell the agitation in our lives, and I don't know if this is, you know, again, I'm sort of putting it out there and just seeing whether this has resonances with you. The agitation is often there in the back that something isn't quite right. Something at the back of our consciousness, but something in the back of our lives that is unrecognized, not completely seen, but drives us to continuously, for example, into continuous processes of becoming and attempting to become something in order to quell that sense of dissatisfaction we have with life. So much so that in this blindness we end up going around in circles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always tempted, you know, when people talk about you know, rebirth um, as a kind of dimension of what rebirth is really about psychologically is being born again and again and again and again in the same place. Yeah, and not actually learning much 
in that process. When I, when I used to teach at Bristol University, when I used to teach Buddhist studies at Bristol University, uh, one of the films I used to show them um, of rebirth um, was Groundhog Day. Because <laughs> Groundhog Day summed it completely up. Sometimes you might learn, but there's an awful lot of processes to go through uh, to engage in the, in the learning process that will actually make you wake up in some sense. So we're waking up to what is really there, the way the world really is. So this has a dose of reality to it. Yeah. It has a dose of reality, and then something that the Buddha really is saying is not easy, waking up to life as it is. A lot of traditions have traded off the ideas of other places, other metaphysical realms in which we will gain our happiness, um, this life being a mere training for that, in some senses, uh, a mere training for death and after death. I don't think this tradition, the Buddha speaks about in some of the texts, he talks about awakening in this very life, waking up in this very life. It's not futural. It's something to be done here and now to wake up to these conditions. And the conditions are dukkha. Actually, to put them in order, impermanence, dukkha, and not self. The impersonality of phenomena and, in a way, what is going on within ourselves. Impermanence. As I said earlier, it seems so easy, doesn't it? It seems so easy to understand this intellectually. In fact, it doesn't take a great intellect to understand the notion of impermanence. We see, we see things changing around us. You know? And as I said the other night, some of those conditions might change for our good. And we embrace them. Yeah. But actually a lot of the change that we see around us is actually related in a sense to the second of these conditions, um, the second of these marks, as the Buddha talks about them, the marks of existence, the characteristics of existence, which is actually they're painful. Much of the change we have around painful. Think of the losses that we may have had in our lives. You know, Think about the impermanence that we have from health to sickness, you know, from, from youth to age, yeah. let alone all of the other conditions of the job changing and the environment changing and the economic situation changing and all of the changes, the changes that we, we cannot avoid. They're there. This is the warp and woof of the world we live in. It's a world of change. What we perceive around us, nothing remains the same. Yeah. Nothing remains the same. Even, you know, even you know, the oldest human monuments continue to deteriorate and we have to go through vast you know, kind of technologies to try and support these things, to stop them from deteriorating and to try and preserve them. The Himalaya continues to arise. You know, it goes up by a certain amount every year because of the the Indian subcontinent butting into the rest of Asia, you know, pushing the, the mountains up even higher. So nothing around us remains the same. Um, and certainly we won't remain the same. And those around you won't remain the same. 
but we take it almost as a personal slight when people change, don't we? Yeah. Um, but of course, we are changing for them too. So change is embedded into, into the warp and woof of life, into the texture, the woven texture of the life that we inhabit. We cannot avoid it. And as I say, it's a double-edged sword because a lot of that change we will embrace because it's actually good. Technologies, perhaps, that come about, labor-saving devices, you know, as I joked the other night, the rays you get, perhaps, when you walk in, you know, you know, these are perhaps, that's perhaps a fantasy, I don't know. Um, you know. All of these things that change for our benefit, then we tend to embrace. But when it's detrimental to us, we're often avoiding it. And actually, in that deep sense, often we don't want to know about that sort of change. We certainly don't want to know about one sort of change, um, often particularly in the Western world, because we've been very, very good at denying this. It's called mortality. Yeah. Death denial. Yeah. And the sense of our non-existence. It's been a huge part of the Western psyche in denying that. Um, Western philosophy doesn't really talk about it until the 20th century. You know, quite incredible, isn't it? You know, 2,300, 2,400 years of Western thought doesn't really talk about death until the 20th century. There's been that sense of the denial of it. So this is a huge part, and so much of the dukkha that we experience, so much of this dissatisfaction, this spectrum word that I explored with you just a tiny bit the other night, so much of that spectrum word is tied up with that sense of loss, of change, of movement, of things not remaining the same. You know, just as we think we've got something that we want, it will fall apart. You know, just as the relationship you think is established, your partner goes and changes on you. you know, all of these things happen. They do not remain the same. So much of the dukkha that we um, experience is often that dukkha of change. In fact, I won't go into it tonight, but the dukkha, the dukkha the Buddha speaks about has many variations, and the dukkha of change is one, um, that part of dukkha. Then there's the self-inflicted dukkha, again, which I touched on the other night, you know, having some sort of continuity between what I spoke about in the first talk and what I'm speaking about tonight. So much of that is self-inflicted. When we put the things that we dislike under the magnifying glass and go into that state which we see so much in these MBIs of that resistance. When we resist that which is inevitable, when we come into an argumentative stance with life, arguing against the inevitable. You can see, I hope you can see that, that there's so much pain involved that when we argue with the inevitables of life, when we argue with the existential conditions of life, there is only going to be one loser, and it's generally going to be us, when we come into that argumentative frame with, with life. And so we inflict it on ourselves. And then there's just simply the dukkha of pain. Yeah, this, is, this is just such an enormous part. You know, we are wired in a particular way. We have evolved in a particular way. Cutters and we hurt. You know, bruises and we hurt. Damages psychologically and we hurt. And this is a part of life as well. So there is literally the dukkha of pain that we experience by being the kind of 
beings that we are, having evolved in this particular way. And it's inevitable, it's unavoidable. Um, just to make you feel a little better, even the Buddha gets sick, old, and dies. Yeah. It's not a case of, you know, we, we see the religious elements coming in much later, but you know, it's quite clear from the early text, from, you know, from what we call generally the Pali Canon, this material that's preserved in the ancient Indian language of Pali, uh, that the Buddha gets sick a lot of the time, particularly as he gets older, as he ages, and he dies. Yeah. Kind of end of story. Yeah. What he leaves behind is a dispensation. What he leaves behind is, is a teaching about how to live with those, you know, with those inevitables. Getting old, getting sick, and dying. Yeah. Even at the end of his life, I mean, he teaches, as I said, for 45 years, and then has this little phrase that he says at the end of his life, absolutely, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it'll get the point across. You know, all phenomena that we encounter is conditioned, therefore is impermanent, so strive on. Strive on diligently. Really, in a way, what he's saying is, you know, everything you're going to encounter in your life is impermanent. Now get on with it. You know, now get on with the business of living. Now get on with that life. Don't resist it. Come into negotiation with it. Yeah. I could spend the rest of the evening exploring these. They're such important dimensions of our psychological condition. In, a, in other ways, our inability to actually move into a place of acceptance of these being parts of our lives. Yeah. That these are the conditions under which we, we, you know, we live. Even those around the Buddha sometimes didn't get it. You know, he has a cousin who's his, basically his attendant at the end of his life. You know, and again, I'm paraphrasing you know, because the ancient texts, because they're so ancient, say it in a very convoluted, sometimes very, um, I don't know, sort of Indian hyperbolic way. And you know, the Buddha is basically dying and Ananda, who's his attendant, is crying. And the Buddha's almost saying to him something like, Ananda, what have I been teaching you all these years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those don't get it, because in a way we are quite resistant. And I hope you can see this. We're quite resistant to taking on those, those things on board. And, and loss, in a way, almost surprises us because we haven't built it into our way of being. We, can't, we haven't really built it into our bodies. You know, our, our, almost our corporeal, cellular way of being in this world, which is the acceptance of the inevitabilities of some of these losses. That's not to deny grief and the importance of grief and all of these things, but we're talking about denial. We are talking about the pushing away. And we push away again through confusion. Yeah. We push away um, through wanting things to be different than they actually are. But we're confronted by those things. None of us will avoid those things in our lives. We will know people 
if not having directly encountered death and loss ourselves. And I would suspect that the majority of you have encountered it sometime in your life, even if it's the death of your first pet. Yeah. Which can be quite traumatic, can't it? For, for a child, when you lose your first pet. Yeah. Because in a sense, we don't really understand that sense of loss that's there. So impermanence, yes, we get it. But in other words, we don't get it. We somehow deny it. And psychologically, the Buddha is saying, this is one of the things that we really wake up to, but we wake up to it fully. Take it on board fully. Embody a sense of letting go in life. The poet Rilke, who I quoted the other night, and I'll quote again later on, once said, you know, in one of his poems, to be, to be ahead of all of your partings. In other words, you've already thought about partings and loss. He also goes on to say, you know, we, we dwell in this world forever taking leave. I, think, I love that expression. You know, we dwell in this word for, world forever taking leave of things. You know, almost saying goodbye to them all the time. Every moment we're doing it, aren't we? As I often make clear, just in sitting meditation, you say, oh, the breath is boring, I've seen the breath, you know. Every breath is unique. It will not return again, that breath, in that same way. And yet we go, boring, don't want to know about this breath. Mind wants to go off and be entertained, do other stuff. Yet this very moment, what is happening here, right now, the sensations you're having, even the boredom, perhaps of listening to this, or whatever the experiences are, are unique to this moment, will not last, will not come back, whatever it is. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not so good. Yeah. And we miss out so much on experience, don't we? We miss out on huge dimensions of our life, because we want to get to the next moment into the next thing, the much more interesting thing, you know, the kind of gaze that Akinchino talked about last night, of scanning the horizon for what's going on, what's the most interesting thing going on. And we lose what is under our very nose, yeah. which is what is impermanent, but what is unique, and what is sometimes extremely life-enhancing, full of meaning, and something which really brings us into our sense of being. In Japan, the highest form of aesthetics in Japan, uh, for Japanese obviously being influenced by Buddhist culture, but the highest form of aesthetics in Japan is cherry blossom. Yeah. On Japanese radio, you will get reports on where the best cherry blossom is. You know, like we have the weather report constantly. Uh, during the spring part of the Japanese season, you'll get regular reports on cherry blossom. And why is cherry blossom considered to be the height of aesthetics in Japan? Because it's impermanent. It lasts but a brief moment and is gone. Yeah. And the beauty in, is in its briefness. Yeah. And so often we miss in our lives, you know, using that as a, as a metaphor for what we are engaging, we often miss in our lives something and don't value it because it's fleeting. 
And if we do value it, we often try to hold on to it. We try to, to stay its transitoriness. Life is evanescent. It's rising and falling continuously. Now, to get to the topic I really want to talk about. Again, my preambles go on, don't they? I mean, but to get to the topic I really want to talk about tonight, it's not unrelated in many ways to what I've spoken about so far. Because in many senses, this, this teaching, which seems often so counterintuitive to us in the Western world, this teaching of not-self, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second, but this teaching of not-self is a direct correlate to the teaching of impermanence. Yeah? It's a direct correlate to that teaching of impermanence. It's, it's the, almost a logical outcome of this. Imagine this. See how this strikes you. Absolutely everything in the world that I encounter is impermanent, but not me. <laughs> I can tell by the sort of wry smiles on many people's face. Do you see the ludicrousness of that? That yeah. there is something rather ludicrous about the idea of us being a permanent entity in the face of all of this change. Somehow, as if we were exempt, we have an exemption certificate um, from the rest of the universe. You know, me, John, has an exemption certificate that says I'm not going to change. Yeah. I'm certainly not going to die. I'm not going to go out of existence. Seems rather strange, doesn't it? So, you know, putting it back again into the context, actually, strangely enough, in ancient India, people did believe that that there was something within the individual that didn't die that didn't change, that was going to be reborn. Yeah. Not that rebirth was necessarily a good thing, um, because it didn't mean liberation in these metaphysical systems that were spoken of in the time of the Buddha. But that something, which was called the Atman, was going to go on. And you might have encountered this term, particularly if you've been, any of you are familiar with yoga or the Upanishads, which is a lot of where these ideas come from. You know, this idea of the Atman was of a permanent phenomena that did not depend on anything else for its existence. Yeah. Now, that sounds very strange to us, perhaps, I don't know. However, we do have something similar, not identical. We have something similar in the idea of a soul. Yeah. Some kind of permanent entity within each individual. Um, the Buddha effectively is saying, if there is such a thing, I could find it. I cannot find it. And it just doesn't make sense in many ways with the way the rest of the universe works in terms of the changes and the impermanence that we encounter in life. That there isn't something within us which is permanent. In some forms of Hinduism, for example, some of you might be familiar with the Gita, it, it actually gives rise to some pretty dodgy ethics as well. Um, as as uh, Krishna says to Arjuna, some of you might know the context of this, the um, Bhagavad Gita is a, it basically 
a little chapter in an episode in a civil war between two competing families. And, you know, the other people on the other side are basically related to those on you know, one side. You know, so basically it's antagonistic families who are related. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> but within this idea, there's the idea that, um, as Krishna puts it, if you think you're, if you kill, and if you think you are killed, you are mistaken. Because the Atman neither is born nor dies. Perfectly good justification for actually really not uh, bothering about whether I kill something or whether I'm killed myself. There's a lot more to it than that, but as you can see, I mean, what, what the Buddha is saying is I cannot find this, this dimension. I cannot find this object which we call Atman. Now, that's ancient India. How does this mean to us? What does this mean in, in contemporary terms? It means, actually, that most of us, despite appearances to the contrary, when we look around the world and see all this impermanence, we see all the change around us, still have this sense of something within us which doesn't change. Yeah. And that's thing we generally identify as being ourselves that thing which possesses some degree of identity over time. Yeah. Does this make sense? Yeah. That sense that we all have, no matter about all the superficial changes, which I'm all too aware of every time I look in the mirror, um, actually not so superficial sometimes, um, when you look in the mirror that you've changed and that, but there's still that feeling that there is something within you that hasn't changed, you know, that hasn't really you know, mutated, and transmogrified into something else. Yeah. That I am the, the same person that I was yesterday, and the same person that I was, in a sense, despite all, again, a lot of the changes, that I was when I was age 15 or 5 or whatever it might be. This is the same person. In a sense, what the Buddha is trying to do is to get us to see below the surface of that feeling and to see the possibilities of liberation, there's possibilities of awakening being linked to getting rid of the notion of something which is self-sufficient and identical existing through time. Now, that's being put in rather philosophical terms. Let's again unpack that. What it means is to stop viewing ourselves as a thing. Yeah. In other words, sometimes, if I, you know, again, again, how you feel, I have to get used to think about this for yourselves. Sometimes if you kind of think, sit there and relate to what's going on with myself, this feels that sense of identity, that unchanging reality within myself. And so I kind of relate to myself a bit like an object. And I relate to you because I'm relating to myself as an object. Perhaps I relate to you a bit like an object. Yeah. There's an object within you, which is you. And there's an object within me, which is me. Yeah. Can't confuse them. <laughs> You're not me and I'm not you. Um, and that appears to have a stability. And it appears to have a continuity of existing over time without change. Now, we all know in a way that's quite untrue. 
Because, you know, from the, if I look at photographs of myself at the age of five, I certainly don't look anywhere near that I look like now. Um, when you think of all the experiences that we've garnered over our lifetime, all the changes that we've made in our lives, the relationships that have been formed and been broken, um, you know, just the sheer forms of life that we've taken up often and put down and taken up other forms of life, we know we've changed, don't we? So much so, actually, I'm just going to throw this out here, so much so that we can look at ourselves as almost having a succession of other lifetimes. Yeah. Doesn't it ever feel like that to you? Look back in my past and I think, gosh, yeah, that was a completely different lifetime ago. Yeah. But I still feel me. <laughs> Despite that, I still feel me. And so there's this tendency to to place a sense of identity on ourselves, almost something static within, something underlying all the changes, yeah? underlying all of the changes that are going on. Yeah. Actually, that thing that's underlying all the changes is not changing. Do we believe that? Do you really see that? That thing that underlies all of the changes. Everything else is changing. My body is changing. My mind is changing. Yeah, my life has changed. Yeah. Sometimes out of all recognition to the way it used to be, yet there is this one thing underlying all of that which doesn't change. And I call it me. Yeah. And I'm very attached to it. <laughs> that me. Um, we also label it with the first-person pronoun, I. Yeah, that I. Have you ever noticed in English, it works really well in English, it doesn't work so well in other languages, but in English it works wonderfully well. That I, if I had a board here and I drew it on the board, I, doesn't it look all lonely? <laughs> <laughs> that first-person pronoun, it's all sort of stick-like and lonely. <laughs> It also looks a bit like a post. <laughs> yeah. And actually, the reason why I say that is because that's how the Buddha often describes the sense of I that we so desperately cling to. He says it's a bit like a dog tied to a post. What we do is we keep circling the same thing again and again and again, just going round in circles. Does life ever feel like that? going around in circles, and it's off circulating around me. Coming back to that phrase, you know, that's enough about me, what do you think about me? Yeah, we keep going around ourselves, and we're often saying that about ourselves. Sometimes we get sick of me. Not so sick that we don't come back to it, though. Yeah. <laughs> and we keep coming back to it. Iris Murdoch, the novelist, once spoke about, you know, what she, what she called uh, the, the great fat ego. Yeah. The great fat ego and the great fat ego sat there in front of your vision, blocking everything. Because actually all you saw was the ego. What you saw was you. Yeah. Most of the time. You didn't really occasionally what you did was you peeped around the corner. And then you might catch a glimpse of others. But most of the time we sat there looking at ourselves. Yeah. Now, I'm painting a very particular picture to try and give you an idea of why this is so important, because otherwise it can sound like a mere philosophical problem. 
and it's not, because the Buddha attaches enormous importance, importance to our correctly understanding the way that we are in this world. Now, I deliberately used an expression at the beginning of this talk, which was, in speaking about these three things that the Buddha speaks about, of impermanence, dukkha, hopefully that word is a bit more familiar for many of you now, if you haven't heard it before, that sense of dissatisfaction and all the rest of it and the tragedies and the pain of life, but that underlying sense of dissatisfaction. And then this sense of not-self. So actually the way things really are is they're impermanent. Understand it, the Buddha is saying. Understand it. Really incorporate it. I love that word, incorporation. It means to take within the body. Yeah. To take within the body. Because so it becomes a cellular understanding. As I said before, and I really do want to emphasize this, is not to underestimate the power of grief and take that out. These are human responses to life. But to really know impermanence. To know it in your own life. To know it as it's written into the world. To know that dukkha is part of life. You know, just simply the way that we're wired. It's part of life. It's part of our experience of it. You know, cut myself and I will bleed. You know, somebody is abusive to me, I will suffer mentally. Sometimes. And then finally, to understand that things that we perceive to be self are actually not self. What does this actually mean? Why is this so important? Yeah, that's the real question, isn't it, around this whole notion. Notice the word, though, not self. The thing I really want to highlight there is the Buddha is not saying that there is no self. Now, popular books on Buddhism sometimes still use this idea that the Buddha is speaking about no self. He's not interested in that at all. It's not that bipolar logic that we get into. Something is or it isn't. You know? If it isn't, it must be. If it is, it must not be. You know? So we get into this bipolar logic. That's the way our thinking goes, isn't it? If you know anything about Buddhism, you will probably know that one of the epithets around the Buddha's path that he often constantly uses is it's that it's a middle way. Actually, the kind of logic that we're involved in, this logic of exclusion in, in, in Western logic is called the law of excluded middle. Yeah. Aristotelian logic. Something is or it isn't. Yeah. This is kind of George Bushism. You're either for me or against me. Yeah. Yeah, that was the kind of statements that were made. And often that's the way our thinking progresses. And basically what the Buddha is saying, this is too simplistic. That's not the way we are. What he was interested in is how this phenomena that we call the self, very dear to us, actually works. Now, to cut a long story short, because I'm aware <laughs> that time is getting on here, to cut a long story short, this involves an understanding that makes a shift from us being things and you being things to us being processes. It's really important. This is what the Buddha is understanding. 
actually the changes you see in people if you teach an eight-week course can only occur because they're not things. No matter how intractable their problems might seem to them, you know, and people do that. We identify, don't we? We identify sometimes with our, with our symptoms. You know, I'm a depressive person. I'm an optimist or I'm a pessimist. I am this or that. And actually this is what people do to us as well, isn't it? Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, you're that type of person? Have you ever had that? How did it make you feel? It makes you feel sort of, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> you know? And you feel like saying, yes, I might be at some time, but I'm not at the moment. <laughs> so often what we do to ourselves and others do to us and we do to others is make identities out of processes. Yeah? We take a trait that we see, and it might be manifest quite a lot of the time, and we overgeneralize it. Yeah. We take a trait about ourselves and we say, I am this sort of person. Yeah. And hold on to it. So the self, actually, if we want to look at it in one way, the self as an object, that thing that we sometimes think we feel about ourselves, is actually a contraction. It's almost like a spasm that we have when we go, ooh, I'm that sort of person. Yeah. And we have this idea of mine. And you can see that we kind of take it within us and we hold it within us. This is mine. Yeah. It's not yours, it's mine. So we make the movement, and this is the important movement, from being something which is in process, something which is kinetic, and we create something static out of it. No wonder we feel trapped. I mean, I kind of make that as a very serious statement. No wonder sometimes we feel trapped. We feel trapped because we can't see outside the bars of our cage. But we don't realize that the cage is often self-created. Not entirely. Sometimes our situations create some of those cages. You know, our societies create some of those cages. But to a large part, we're often responsible for creating the cage that we live within. And we create the identities that we have out of that. In fact, aren't we deeply suspicious of those who appear to have no strong likes and dislikes? Yeah? It's almost as if we don't know them. If they don't have a strong preference for something. Yeah? that you're not that kind of person because you don't express a strong dislike of that or that. And actually, I used to do this as a, as a little experiment with students once, which was, you know, what is yourself? What you end up usually is, a, is a two lists, what I like and what I dislike. Yeah? I wish I had time to do it with you. Because yeah. actually, that's the way we identify ourselves. You know, series of things... I like this, I'm the sort of person that likes this and doesn't like that. I like this and I don't like that. I like this and I don't like that. And that gets that feeling of who we are. 
But what we're doing when we start to identify with that is we start to create stasis. We start to create something static out of something which is dynamic. Something which can be spacious and be what it is. And I'm tempted to say be the change that you are here. And we take that spaciousness, we take that dynamism, which is ourselves, and we create this static entity which almost is saying to itself, I can't possibly change. Yeah. Have you noticed that sometimes when you're working with people, the intractability that they seem to have about themselves? I can't possibly do that. I can't possibly be this way. I can't possibly change. I am this sort of person. All of this language is very much what the Buddha is speaking about when he speaks about the dog tied to the post. Going round and round the same thing again and again and again. The movement that the Buddha is, in a sense, recommending to us is to take ourselves out of a sense of being nouns. And notice how much we identify with names. Take ourselves out of being nouns, static phenomena, things that we've named about ourselves and being the verbs that we are. Then we come back to the project of awakening, this waking up that the Buddha speaks about. Awakening is only possible in the way that the Buddha speaks about it because we're not a thing. If we were a thing, we couldn't possibly change. Does that make sense? If I'm a thing, I can't possibly change. So if the very nature of me was whatever label I cared to say about myself, I'm, I'm ultimately really a depressed person, I'm really a pessimist, well, actually, I can't change that. I can change the peripheries, perhaps, but I can't change the essential nature of who I am. The Buddha's saying this is nonsense. Yeah? Awakening is possible because you're not a thing I don't know how that sounds to you. When I first encountered this idea, just alone, that sounded liberating. That the possibility of liberating yourself from all of your neurotics, your, your neurotic strivings. Because actually, we're turning ourselves more and more thing like in that inward glancing eye as we turn ourselves into this thing that we're not. We make ourselves into caricatures, often. Now, I'm not saying all the time, but a lot of the time this is what we do to ourselves. This is the self-inflicted wound again. We're wounding ourselves. We're certainly taking away our possibilities. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, in um, what's usually translated as being a nothingness, once said basically all human beings were trying to turn themselves into tables and chairs. (laughs) Tables and chairs have static identities. What we, in a way, I don't always agree with him, but I think it's quite a good diagnosis of this, is often we are frightened of the freedom that we are. 
often frightened of the possibilities that we may be something else. The Buddha's awakening, the waking up process, is predicated on the idea that we are not a something. It's predicated on that idea that change is only possible because I am not essentially this or not essentially that. I'm not essentially good, I'm not essentially bad. I can take up good stances, I can take up bad stances. I can behave skillfully and wholesomely, but I can also behave unwholesomely and unskillfully. How do you want to nudge the process? That's the question, isn't it? How do you want the process to go that you are? Because actually, you will continue to change anyway. No matter what labels you put on yourself, no matter how much you constrict yourself, no matter how much you try to hold yourself in place in certain ways, that, that process of change will still continue. Yeah. Usually, as I say, to the annoyance of people close to you. It's, it's sad, isn't it? That, that's often we don't accept the changes that the other are. You know, a lot of relationship fails and falters because actually relationship is about negotiated change. You know, it's not about being a something for somebody for life. You can't do that. You can't sustain that without having to warp and go through amazing convolutions to try and halt the change that you are in that. So what's so important is owning up, in a way, to those possibilities of change. Now many, many people, not just within Buddhism, and this is why I want to say this is an insight that many have had over the centuries, within the West as well as within the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha allies it to a doctrine which is aimed at liberating us. Others have had that insight. The um, short story writer, Catherine Mansfield, uh, was once very perplexed, she said, when she was um, told the dictum of be true to yourself. She said, when I look inside myself, I find myself as a concierge in a hotel with a hundred guests. I don't find a self. The philosopher David Hume says, every time I look inside myself, what I find are bundles of perceptions. I can't find a self. And just finally, just one other quote here, the philosopher Wittgenstein, in one of his philosophical investigations, said, I have the feeling that the self is merely a grammatical error. You know, the fact that to make a well-formed sentence, we have to have I placed in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't just go around saying, do we, well, there's anger going on. <laughs> there's a bit of sadness around. You know, I say, I am sad, I am angry, I am happy, I am so on and so forth. Um, and we almost get gulled by the metaphysics of the language that we continuously use. And think about that. We're saying that all the time. Yeah. We're continually reinforcing that notion of our sense of self when we use those terms, I and I am. The Buddha says this, 
And I'll only read a, a section of this because it's, it's quite a long quote. It says, I am is a conceiving. You know, I am is a perturbation, you know, an agitation. I am is a palpitation. Yeah. I am is a proliferation. You know, it's endless thoughts about this I am. And finally, he says, I am is a conceit. Yeah. Now, this affects all of our relationships. When we identify with the I am and everything that goes with the I am. However, a lot of our experience of that I am is only coming about in times of strong aversion and strong craving. Yeah? That's when it really hits home, doesn't it? Yeah? When I want something and when I don't want something. When my will is thwarted, yeah? or this strong desire there. I often come into being. A lot of the time, actually, we walk around the world with a very weak sense of I am. When we're involved in our projects, when we're involved in, in our day-to-day -day activities, you know, you're going along actually quite okay, and then somebody says, you can't do that. You go, I am. Yeah. It comes into very strong force at those moments in time. You know? And so, in ways of starting to undermine this sense of I am, we start to work on that which upholds that sense of self. That which, in a sense, is part of its generative quality, what generates this feeling of I am, of identity. I mean, I could go on talking for ages about this, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I want to finish in a second. But this I am is being held in place by this strong quality of grasping, this strong quality of craving, this strong quality of aversion, what I want, what I don't want. And it affects all of our relationships. It cuts us off from others. As Rilke again says, you know, he says in one of his eighth elegies, you know, everything else looks out into the open. Human beings are peculiar creatures that are turned around looking into themselves, you know, attached to that sense of I am in it. Just to finish off, um, you know, because uh, I'm talking about how it affects relationships, I came across a quotation. Some of you have heard this, I know, because you've been on retreat with me before. But um, I came across a, not a quotation, I came across a cartoon a number of years ago, which talked about, in a way, was very indicative of relationships. And it was a series of um, a, a, a man and a woman sitting at a table. It was obviously a dinner or something. It was a candle in the center. And the man... And there's quite a lot of squares on this, you know, uh, probably about seven or eight squares um, in the top part, and then it had another equal length on the bottom of it. And the man was leaning across the table, and the bubble above his head, in each of the squares, it was going, me. <laughs> me. Me. <laughs> me. Me. <laughs> and it went on like this for ages and ages and ages. And then... He kind of obviously finished speaking because she leans across the table and she's leaning on the table and the bubble above her head comes, up, comes the bubble and it goes, me. And he goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
think it says a lot about relationships, doesn't it? You know, two dialogues of me somehow not quite getting together. Yeah. So when we start to think about this notion of self within the Buddha's teaching, when we start to thinking about it within MBIs, we're talking about something which is really quite fundamental. One of the things that's being encouraged, not in the way I've talked about it tonight, one of the things that's being encouraged is the decentering of self in relationship to thought processes in MBIs. Now, this is not so dissimilar from what I've spoken about this evening. What we're coming into in relationship to those thought processes is a position of non-identification. So if the majority of the thought processes that are going on are related, let's just take the kind of classic basic forms of MBCT as an example, are depressive forms of thought processes, ruminations around depression, then that decentering process allows you to take up a position of non-identity with it. That is what we mean by the decentered self. What the Buddha is encouraging is, is to decenter from craving, from aversion, from all of the other things that arise in our mind to which we so readily grasp after and say, that's me, as opposed to you. It actually keeps me separated from you keeps me out of relationship with you at all. When we start to do that, then the very things that we've spoken about, the very possibilities of the metta that you've been inclining your mind towards, well, what is metta? Metta, as you know, is a movement out often in the categories, if we just take that formalistic practice, the categories of relating to others. Compassion Yes, it can be about oneself, but it's actually the movement out to see the pain of others. The empathetic relationship that we talk about as being joy, this appreciative joy, is about getting out and appreciating the joys of others as well as their pains. Now, I hope you can see that the movement out there actually stops me being infatuated with my own neurotic strivings. It gets me out in the world. The self, really, is something almost behind double glazing. Yeah. It doesn't actually get out into the world. The world very rarely impinges on it. And if it does, it usually creates anger and all of the other psychological conditions of resentment and jealousy and things because it's being impinged on in some way. I think I'll finish there. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for your attention, everybody. And if we can just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.